Welcome, welcome to the other side of midnight.com. We have a really wonderful show lined up for us tonight, but first I want to give a message from Richard to all of you. He thanks you for all your well wishes. He thought he was feeling great yesterday and decided to take a little walk, and apparently it was just too much. It taxed the system, and today he was really unable to get up and even stand. So he was hopeful. <laughs> so anyway, he does. He said, thanks you all, and we send him well wishes. I know this is a topic he really, really, really wanted to, to uh, host. So tonight our guest is Gary Wayne, and it's featuring his book, The Genesis Six Conspiracy. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Okay, who were the Nephilim? My guest tonight, author Gary Wayne, will, without fascin- will lay out fascinating connections between the ancient Nephilim in the Bible and the mysteriously disappearing fossils of genuine ancient giants which have been discovered around the world, only to repeatedly disappear both physically and from the inventory lists of the museums that originally collected them. Based on these recurring giant fossil disappearances, one could venture to claim some kind of conspiracy to keep the reality of ancient giants hidden from contemporary science for some reason, which with new evidence is exactly what Gary Wayne is claiming. So everyone, if you want to find tonight's show page, please go to theothersideofmidnight.com. And tonight's show is called The Genesis 6 Conspiracy. And if you're looking in the show catalog, that's how you'll find it. My co-hosts tonight are Annette Driscoll, Timothy Saunders, Ron Gerbron, and myself, Kinthea. And welcome, Gary. I Actually, let me read your bio first, because you have an amazing story. <laughs> I really, really, really enjoy it. So... Wayne is a Canadian, a Christian contrarian who grew up in northern Saskatchewan, a large territory province with a small population. Gary's interests were seen as strange, so he pursued them alone. It was natural for Gary, who had a strong independent streak, to venture out on his own when he was 18. He explored and traveled all across western Canada, landing up in Vancouver, When he was in his 20s, his brother and friends challenging him said, let's see if you have the courage to read this book. It was a book called The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. Even today, Gary tells how it scared the socks off him. The book grabbed his attention. His passion for history and mythology added to his great curiosity got the best of him. He wanted to find out if the book was reporting fiction, manipulating the Bible, or a record of actual events in time and a prophecy of events to come. He wanted to unlock the mystery of where we find ourselves today. This was an intense time of research into ancient prophecy and documentation of important historic corollaries, such as the giants the flood, and much more. His investigations into religion led him to the mystery schools, which led him to secret societies, and on and on it goes. Gary enjoyed piercing together fragments of history and mythology to resurrect the culture of those times, each word leading him to another layer, another nuance about the origin times. The revelations that unfolded over the next 20 years took him on a journey beyond religion and into an awareness of his spiritual life. So, Gary, welcome to the show. It's such a pleasure to have you with us. Well, thank you for inviting me and so happy to be here tonight and so much looking forward to the conversation tonight. And I think 
many of the things that we're going to talk about are going to raise the curiosity in the audience and you know that's what we're here to do Thank you. This is a topic that has always fascinated me from the time I was a young girl, especially Revelations. I was like, oh, yeah, the horses and who's 666 and so on. So um, I want to invite all our other co-hosts to jump in if you feel like it. You're welcome to do so. Uh, But first, maybe, Gary, you just want to sketch out a little overview of what your book is about. Yeah, it's not one of those short reads. So it's a what I would call a 6,000-year connect-the-dots investigation into the House of Dragon and how that connects into the creation of the giants by the fallen angels with the uh, daughters of human females, how they're connected to the mystical religions and the mystery schools which produce the secret societies and how those groups and the Canaanites worked together to bring the first epoch into uh, a catastrophic flood, and then how those organizations crossed the flood, how they usurped the kingships and the organizational structure of society after the flood, what they've done through history, what they're doing today, and how they bring, plan to bring about the end times. So it's... Uh, it's a fairly detailed book that is loaded with information. It's about 800 pages, over 100 pages of, of endnotes so that people can look at where my research is coming from, test the veracity of that. And because it's so long, I wrote each chapter into a mini story, which leads into the next chapter. And we'll keep coming up as the book unfolds so that you can go back and reread and easily find some of the information. And it's not one of those books you can speed read because every paragraph is jammed with information. So it's one of those books you want to read and digest. And if you want to read one chapter a night, that's that's uh, easily done. And there, the chapters would average about five to seven pages. And there are 98 chapters. Oh, my goodness. Well, I, you really perked my curiosity because you always hear people saying they, they did this and they, and so I'm really curious to explore with you who the they is, but let's start at the beginning here. I, what is that what your image number one, which is the Enki God? Is that what you would say is num- at the beginning of the story or how would you lead us in? Well, it is certainly very well connected to the beginning. So if people aren't familiar with the Sumerian pantheon that Enki comes from, he has a parent named Anu, and his brother would be Enlil. So you have parent gods, and then you have the second-tier gods. And Enki is depicted, as Enlil is, as a serpent god. In fact, sometimes he's depicted in symbols, in glyphs, as a snake wrapped around a rod or a staff. And sometimes you get a double-headed helix look uh, that you also see in some of the depictions and reliefs and interesting enough these are the same type of motifs that you're going to see come down through uh, to the modern age with medical associations either professional or uh, commercial one will have a single snake motif and one will have a double snake motif and what's interesting about that is the single serpent motif with the rod is also the symbol for mystery schools. So it's interesting when we look at the serpentine look of the god Enki, that's a not an unusual look. And most of the people in the audience are going to understand that there are so many gods around the earth that are depicted as serpents or flying serpents, which would be a dragon, understanding that a serpent and a dragon were considered the same type of being, whether physical or a god, uh, in the ancient world. So when we look at descriptions of, let's say, the creator gods out of China, which are dragon gods, or you have Naga gods which out of India, which are feathered, uh, several-winged uh, serpent-faced gods, and you have Quetzalcoatl, let's say, as a plume serpent, or a feathered serpent, and all the associated gods as uh, that line of the gods are depicted throughout Central, South, and North America. You also have 
the gods coming out of ancient Greek, which were typically depicted as serpents. And then you have coming out of the Egyptian uh, second tier gods, you would have like Osiris and Isis are typically in the original setting depicted as serpent gods. So you have this connection of the serpent imagery, just as you have the depiction of the serpent imagery associated with many of the thrones and the dynasties of the ancient world, both before and after the flood. And that's not a coincidence, because as we connect that back to the Bible, and we're looking at the sons of God out of Genesis 6, who create the Nephilim or the giants, and giants is the English word that Nephilim derives from, which is Nephil and I am is the male plural. And the sons of God are, who I believe are the same people as first Enoch are talking about, which are called the Watchers. And the Watchers are a group of three sets of angels that watch and are always awake over and surrounding the throne of God. And that includes the Ophanim in first Enoch, the cherubim, and the seraphim. The seraphim are depicted in Isaiah 6 in the Bible. And these are, as you take that back to Hebrew, angels that are six-winged. And I'll describe their face in a second. They are uh, they derive from the word seraph with the I am, which is the male plural again. And they are ministers that work before the altar and in the fiery stones. And so seraph means, and seraphim, which is the plural, means fiery serpent angels. And these are the same watchers that are depicted in Daniel 4 three times who administer governance from the throne. And they are all one of the same. So we have this commonality of these serpent gods all around the world that are talking about the same set of gods, which were the fallen angels. Well, so I'm just so curious. Are you saying that these gods are metaphorically looking like uh, serpents? I mean, like it's the energy, because I've always understood like the kundalini energy. It's like it's, it's showing an energy pattern, or do they physically look like serpents, or do we even know? Well, it's kind of both, because fallen angels, which are the gods of the pantheon, the rebellious fallen angels are from the heavenly spirit dimension. And that's the spirit world. And so in the physical world, they can take a, uh, a shape of their choice, which is also how they're able to reproduce. And this particular order chooses to be serpent-like. So this is literal and we're talking about this. This is not allegorical, and which is why they're depicted this way all around the world. And when we talk about, go ahead. Well, you said this particular order. So is there another order besides there, these? There are other angels that would have been part of the angelic rebellion as well. So you've got gods that have very different looks. It's mm -hmm. they like the Anunnaki gods. They have this bird face look, right? And just as Horus has this bird face look. And you have uh, angels that have faces of lions. And you have gods that have faces of jackals or, or hounds like Anubis. And so you have many different kinds of these angels, but the seraphim are the ones that reign over the religious aspect and the governance aspect. And so... When one connects the, the, the iconology in terms of the serpent and the mystery schools and everything together, where that all comes together is out of all the cultures in the world, you understand that the knowledge of civilization comes from the gods. And in First Enoch, it talks about these watcher angels, the seraphim, are the ones that provide illicit knowledge to the developing seven sacred sciences that just sets that knowledge on fire and takes it to a whole new level in the Antediluvian Epoch. When you speak of the gods, are are you suggesting that they're immortal or they have long lifetimes or what do we know about them? Well, they are created immortal. And what we also understand is there are a couple different levels of gods. So you have the parent gods. So you would have, as I mentioned, Anu, 
that would be, you know, the main sort of god or the chief god of the Sumerian pantheon. He would have a counterpart in Canaan that would be El. And, you know, part of the second tier gods in, in uh, Canaan would be Baal, which most people are familiar with, or Baal, or some people might pronounce it. Uh, just as one example, you have Ta, which is also known as Ra in the Egyptian pantheon, and Osiris and Isis would be that second tier of gods. And in the Greek pantheon, as another example, you would have Kronos and Gaius as being the parent gods. And then the second tier gods would be those Olympic, Olympic gods, like or Olympus gods, like Zeus or Zeus, and you know, all the gods associated with, with uh, Olymp Olympia as well, or Olympus as, you know, gods like Poseidon and, and Apollo and, and gods such as that. So those are sort of the two levels of gods. But then you get into this mysterious lower level that aren't immortal, long-lived, but they would be called demigods. And demigods, as you take that back in its ancient a definition for history are the offsprings of a god and a, and a human female. Um, one would presume that if a god could take any shape that it wanted, you could have a female god mating with a, a human male and also producing lines. And so that's what a demigod is. And they don't have the immortal spirit. They did initially, but somehow they lost that immortal spirit. And in Genesis 6-3, it's God taking away that immortal spirit and limiting life to 120 years. Now, these demigods are the same as the Nephilim or the giants in uh, Genesis 6. So when we look at who the giants are, they are the demigods, and they are the offspring and the ones who have the divine right to rule and the intermediary between the humans below them and the gods above the demigods. Well, it brings up in my mind the question, I mean, I've come to, at least for me personally, I've come to think of myself as a multidimensional being and I'm aware that my physical existence is mortal and it will have a certain number of years on earth but i'm also really aware that my spirit is eternal so how does that fit into this pantheon of gods i mean like so they live 120 years are they like poof gone after they have no eternal spirit or well a a god a true god is immortal so the only way that we know of on how to kill a god or a fallen angel, is uh, put them into the lake of fire, and I'm not convinced that that kills them, but they would Why be there forever. Mm, okay, I'm I'm going to have to let someone jump in here, because I don't know that I would want to kill a god. I think that well, there are they're different not a, levels of consciousness, so... Well, there's two... I would, I would put two things to that. So you have the Bonatheist perspective, which they are fallen angels as opposed to gods, and uh, you have the polytheist perspective where they actually do find a way to kill each other. So mm -hmm. let's say Tiamat, uh, the Sumerian pantheon, would be who would be very much like a Leviathan-type character out of the Bible and creates a whole bunch of other really crazy beings underneath of her. She's actually killed. And so in polytheism, these gods, there is a way to destroy them and, and kill them. We're not told explicitly, you know, the ins and outs of how that happened. But to me, you'd have to, I'm not sure how you destroy something that's immortal and is part of the spirit realm. So unless they can be killed and destroyed within the physical realm some way while they're in a physical body, that would be the only way to do it. But there's lots of accounts of in polytheism where gods are killing off other gods, gods mm -hmm. so that you have, you know, like Zeus who overthrows Kronos, and Kronos had overthrown Uranus before that, and those gods are somehow killed. But yeah. from the definition of a god, they are immortal, so I'm not sure... Mm how that works from a polytheist perspective. Mm -hmm. Our sound engineer is, is saying that Tiamat was the first female. That that's, I'm sure that's an Enki prophecy. But what I'm seeing here that's is... That's correct. That, okay, so what I'm seeing here is 
there, there's two types of death. I mean, one is a physical death. Okay, my body is going to die. But that doesn't mean that my spirit dies. I, I mean, well, I'm energy, so... Right. Now you're confusing a different type of being, though. So, oh. Right? So you're talking about the humans and the human spirit. So you have a body, a soul, and a spirit. And the soul and the body is of the physical world, but the spirit part is from heaven. Hmm. Ron, do you want to jump in here? I'm sure he's itching to say something. <laughs> Okay, well, you might be on mute, Ron. So I'm noticing here that the in looking at your images, there's this association of the... Okay, there you are. You want to jump in? Uh, no, it's going along just fine. Okay, I, all right. Uh, yeah, I just, I just, uh, I'm the archaeology fallback here if somebody can't pronounce something. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, so... I have, okay, I'm, I have a question, Kintia. Go ahead, Timothy. If I may. Yes, Please. yes, good evening. Well, maybe. So, I would like to ask Gary, um, we're, we're, we're talking about a lot of different civilizations and a lot of different myths, which happened according to the mainstream sort of uh, timeline at different times. So, what I find very curious about the research I've done over the last few decades is that the a similar type of figure, for example, Quetzalcoatl, um, Osiris, um, and and many others seem to appear at certain times in the myth or the religion or the ancient story, whichever it is. Um, but they seem to have very similar aspects, as you, as you pointed out. You know, some are uh, serpent-like, some are feathered, and so on and so on. But how would you account that these myths or the, these these p different peoples around the planet? Um, have occurred at different, apparently at different times in history, and yet they they are the same figure or the same seeding figure. Yeah, I wouldn't quite agree with, with that premise. So typically in all of the different cultures, you have two distinct parts of their history and prehistory. So you have something that is generally intersected or divided by a flood, which is common in basically all cultures around the world. So you have a set of gods that are before the flood. Not all of those are around after the flood. And so Quetzalcoatl tends to be more of a god out of the Popol Vuh, for example, that is helping to civilize humankind after the flood but he may be a replacement god to some of the ones that were punished for all of the violations that led to the flood and so uh, you have to account for that sort of split now secular history doesn't insert a flood there it has a continuous sort of timeline but within that flood zone area in terms of when it would be um, inputted, you get a pretty murky area and, and a difficult ability to put together consistent chronologies, you know, as they cross-link from different cultures and things like that. And I think that's got a lot to do with sort of that, that restart. So when one is qualifying some of these gods, we have to separate the gods that were before the flood and the gods that were after the flood. Some of the names may resurface, but then you get a whole new set of gods after the flood. So it's it's one of the things you have to be careful with. Sure, sure. May I ask, when you say the flood, are you suggesting there was one global flood, or are you saying that there are multiple local floods? Uh, I'm suggesting that the consistency in all the different cultures in terms of whether you call them myths or history or and or the religious accounts suggest a worldwide flood. So now is that, this sort of young, younger Dryas, that type of thing? Do you think that would be a possible point in time when that could identify the flood we're talking about? Uh, I'm sorry, I, I didn't quite hear what you led that question off with. Sorry, the younger Dryas... Um, it was uh, a time... The end of the Ice which, uh, Age. Exactly. Well, the end of the Ice Age would be more about, you know, fourteen or 15,000 B.C. So typically the flood that most people associate around, you know, will be somewhere around 2950 to 3050 B.C. by a, sec a secular chronology. 
And if we have Christians out there that are looking at the, the biblical chronology, that would be more like about, you know, 24 to 2500 B.C. Now, there's evidence that there might be, and also within the mythologies, that there would have been floods before that. Uh, a lot of the, the different, let's say, the Atlantean myth and the Egyptian religion sort of comes together on that, that there would have been uh, floods before that, as well as in celestial procession, there would be different kinds of catastrophic, catastrophic events taking place, typically almost like an alternating fire and water, fire and water. So there are floods, and certainly, you know, researchers like Graham Hancock would suggest there would be more floods that go back towards that 10,000 BC. And that's kind of uh, one of those interesting intersections of, of history in terms of some of the megaliths and the in some of the ancient ruins that are out there that would bring up an interesting cycle in time. But typically the flood, and from where I tend to come from things, is lining things up around when that flood happened within that four or five hundred year window before and after. Mm. Okay, well that's, that's fascinating. So uh, I have a... Go, go ahead, Ron. Yeah, I have a thought. I, maybe I can clarify that a little bit. Uh, some of those things, the end of the Ice Age, it, it takes a thousand years for the ice to go away. And that'll have a different effect in different areas. And you'll get changes in rivers and water concentrations. And they'll flow up to a point where they'll burst dams and create new rivers. And so then you'll get a localized flood. I mean, there was a vast flood in the Black Sea. But that wasn't at the same time as the um, floods that are mentioned in other places. Because until you start writing things down, a culture doesn't have a timeline that we can relate to. And therefore, when something's in folklore, you have the, well, the Australian term, the dream time. You know, it's all, it all melds together. So that's why it's very hard to nail these things down. It's like hanging your hat on a skyhook. We know pretty well when the Ice Age receded and the um intercession the inter interglacial started but we don't know the effect necessarily until we look in a particular location when it had an effect there does that help any well i, I would agree with that you know a hundred percent and you know that's why you know herodotus is looked upon as you know with the first histor historian where he transitions from uncertainty in terms of timelines and facts from fables into sort of documented history. And that is the difficulty as we look into prehistory and how do, how do we sort of line these things up. But when I look at a consistency factor, one of those consistency factors that is a legacy on all continents around the world is the so, flood. All is right. the, and a worldwide flood. And what's associated with that worldwide flood is the same story where you have not only humans being created, but you have these demigods being created around the world where the demigods go from being, for typically in most of the accounts, from being um, judicious and righteous to being evil and that the pantheon of the gods have there, to come Gary. along. Hold it there. I know you're on a flow, but we're at the bottom of the hour. So we've got a break coming up here, and we'll take it up again on the other side of the break. You're on the other side of midnight. Our guest tonight is Gary Wayne, and his book is Genesis 6 Conspiracy. The Other Side of the News is a current and dynamic companion to augment the discussions from The Other Side of Midnight. 
we investigate, explore, and extrapolate facts to gain better understanding of current affairs and events, and thus to bring comfort and calm to our wide international audience. It's a spontaneous commentary based on well-verified references vetted through vigilance and discernment. Our desire, Our desire is to awaken your imagination with questions, questions that have not been asked, yet need answering. The other side of the news is a place where you can come and be with us in community. Learning new things, asking questions, getting compelling answers, and interesting viewpoints. It's about curiosity. We present thought-provoking questions to incite your mind, propelling you to see the world in another way. Propelling you to see the world in another way. With clear insights and fresh perspectives on global events. Tune in for a balanced view of the other side of the news. And the other side of the news can be heard here on this network, on this channel, on this website, on this URL, every Friday evening, two hours, 7 to 9 p.m. Pacific Time. I warn you, you'll miss it at your own peril. other side of midnight to find the show go to the other side of midnight.com tonight's show is the genesis 6 conspiracy you can find it in their show catalog or on our homepage tonight our wonderful guest is gary wayne and uh welcome back let's continue where you left off you were talking about the demigods and the floods and yeah where we left off i was sort of making that connection because prehistory is so foggy and mercury and uh, murky in terms of trying to understand dates and chronologies as you go back you know in, into time when it was all oral traditions and very very little put down in tablets and the common legacy around the world on 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 all continents that i was talking about except for antarctica and who knows what we'll find down there at some point in time is this idea of a flood and that you had these demigods which were created by the gods who ruled over that ancient world in who knows how many different civilizations. Some people think four, seven, nine, eleven. Uh, but there are certainly more than one by the looks of things. And these demigods rebelled against the gods and the flood was brought on to start over. And it's one of those world sort of histories. So you have giants in the flood and humans in the creation with a similarity, with uh, a similar crossroads, just as you have things like pyramids and all of these ancient megalithic structures that are unaccountable around the world, whether or not it's sunken cities or cities in the sky like Machu Picchu. So when you look at that, then you can start to say whether or not all of the facts are true in each account, you start looking at that common denominator. And you get this consistency that is very, very hard to discount as coincidence because 
the odds of that happening just become sort of almost uncountable. Well, one of the things that's like in my awareness is we we have these God beings in our past and whether they, I have a kitty who's being trying to be rounded up by my friend. Um, sorry. So we have these God beings who who have been here. Questions come to my mind. Were they responsible for these magnificent ancient structures? Did they come and go? Are they still here? I, what's the significance and how that ties in? Well, again, in, in the various accounts, because you have some of this turbulence that are going on in terms of some gods being overthrown, you have the flood, you have a new set of gods sort of arriving after the flood, not all, but many, and you get, a, again, a consistency of this place in the underworld. Some people call it Tartarus as it comes out of Greek, uh, but other religions, let's say, as Gnosticism, as in Pistis Sophia would describe this huge abyss with all of these different rooms and compartments with all of these different types of gods and things that I was describing earlier. And biblically, you would get this known as the abyss where the most impassioned and the most evil of the gods who violated the laws of creation before the flood were put into the abyss. And that would mean that there would be subsequent gods that would have succeeded to replace those gods. So biblically, and I'm a Christian contrarian, that would be the council of the gods in Psalm 82 and the 70 gods of that council as described in the number in Deuteronomy 32, both before and after the flood to govern the 70 nations around the world. So again, when we're talking about all these different nations before and after the flood, there could be uh, branches of these larger nations that these gods would be governing over both before and after the flood, but we get more than one civilization that a lot of, let's say, monotheists or biblical people would suggest that there was only one. I would say there's there's more than one. I would say there's at least seven. Well, are these malevolent or benevolent? It sounds like it's a mixture of both. Well, again, in polytheism, you get this classic dualism. And I'll explain that as I come back to include monotheism. But in the dualism of, of polytheism, you have good gods and you have evil gods, and they're all fighting for control, and that you've got this perpetual war going on that will go on forever. In the monotheist perspective, you have uh, good and evil as well, but there's a timetable to that. So you have the loyal angels, which... Uh, let's say the Gnostics would look at the angels of the God of the Bible as being the evil angels, and the people who come from a Christian perspective would say that the good angels and gods that the Gnostics and the polytheists would look at, they would call them the evil ones. So that's the sort of things that, you know, when you're looking at this from that religious perspective, you're going to fall on one side or the other side as to what you believe. But in both belief systems, with just a little difference in the nuance as to how this is going to end up, you have, uh, you know, this, this sort of war going on and good ones and bad ones. And then further within polytheism, you get things like, let's say, good Nephilim or and bad Nephilim. You get white magic and you get black magic. You get white witches, you get black witches. So you get another secondary source of dualism within the polytheist religions. Hmm. Well, you know, as I'm looking at it, I think about the... Uh the ethnic peoples around the world, those who are using ayahuasca and how they're reporting these inner realities and they could be separated from long distances, but they're still reporting the inner realities. And I'm wondering if these depictions of the serpent God, if they're not an inner reality rather than an outer reality. It's certainly, uh, you know, one of those things that you have to leave out as a possibility and that a lot of the things might be allegorical. I come from things from a literal perspective, and I understand things from a literal perspective, and I think that the humans that 
predated us. They may have not had the technology. They may have had greater technology before the flood than what we have today, and we can get into that if you want. Um, but what they weren't was stupid, and I, I don't think that <laughs> – I don't – think that they were just doing things and making all of these reliefs and pictures and talking about these stories just from, you know, the figments of their imaginations that would somehow have consistency amongst all of those cultures. Yes, but you just said figments of imagination, and I'm suggesting that the inner world is not a figment, it's a reality. Well, okay, so maybe maybe I misunderstood what you're act, uh, actually referring to. So when you talk, when you're talking about within the inner self, are you talking from a spiritual perspective? Oh, I'm suggesting that we're quantum beings and we multi-dimensional sure. beings, and like the tip of the iceberg above the water is this little piece that you see, and that's our humanity, and then there's all this other aspect of our expansive self which is not visible to to yeah i think that's that. consistent i think that's mm -hmm. consistent with most um beliefs and with most religions they may define it a little bit differently uh, obviously a spirit realm would be a different dimension so mm -hmm. heaven would be in a different dimension and a lot of people think that the abyss or tartarus is in a different dimension so there's we don't know how many dimensions there are but we know there's more than one dimension. And the spirit beings, the spirit aspect, and the spirit aspect of our inner self would come from at least one of those inner uh, multi-dimensions and would seemingly have the ability, uh, if understood, how to cross over to those dimensions, whether they're through portals or it's just through uh, somehow controlling that ability to do that. Uh, I think there's a lot of knowledge that's been lost on that, and I think that comes down in a lot of the traditions of the of the polytheist uh, religions. But I think we need to recognize that we're all talking about similar kinds of things. One's coming at it from a polytheist lens, one is coming from it from a monotheist lens, and then the seculars are trying to figure it out. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, when I look around at tribes around the world, not heavily influenced by language in, in terms of a written language, but are more of an oral tradition, their dream time is very intense and they communicate in their dream time. And isn't it possible that ancient humanity was more developed in those senses that what we now discard as a figment of our imagination at those times was much more alive and vibrant because we were more focused in that direction. And they would also say through their history that they were more advanced because they lived in a period of time where they actually communicated and dwelled with the gods. Mm -hmm. And they mm -hmm. taught them these things, and that was carried down through history, obviously being you know, lost a little bit more over time. But there was an ability to talk to these beings, communicate with these beings now and before um, through different dimensions. And I think that is absolutely true. Again, who they're talking to, that comes down to your own personal choice and belief. But I believe that communication is going on. And if we look at, you know, rituals and or uh, ceremonies, let's say, that come down through yoga, that is trying to position yourself in a, uh, a mental state to be able to be communicating with these beings that are bringing all the knowledge and everything from the complete universe and putting you into connection with that. I think mm -hmm. you, you're getting a similar thing going on in trances, and I think you're getting a similar things going on in drug enhancement to do the same kinds of things. And I don't think that humans were trying to figure out how to communicate with beings that they didn't know were there. I think they were instructed in the past how to do that. Gary, may I ask you a question um, about this book, which sounds uh, an epic edition. I, I very much look forward to reading it, actually. Um, what do you think influenced you? Do you think you are consciously or subconsciously in communication with the gods if they are eternal then is, is there a possibility is there a connection have you felt anything experienced anything well i'm a christian 
Um, and I'm a Christian contrarian, so I like to verify everything for myself, um, not just take the word of what other people say. So I'm going to come back, come from things from a monotheist perspective. Uh, but my research has taken me to look at and try and understand, and, and in my book I let what I would call um, the other side or of the equation speak for themselves. And so when I speak to uh, my God, um, I do believe I'm communicating directly. I don't believe you know, God is speaking directly back at me, but I do believe that the Holy Spirit is there that is helping with that communication and, and guiding. So I think that's a similar thing with just different beings than what would be described as what the polytheists are doing but, and, where those, and where those beings are located. Well, how do you see in the Bible it, it says that God is omnipresent, that's everywhere. That means there's nowhere God is not. So, so that means that if God is everywhere, then God is inside of you, and God is inside of me, and God is inside of everything, because we're all, we're the texture of God, and God is that and so much more, and God is omnipowerful, so all power and omniscient. And, and our spirit comes from God, so. Yes, and we are the children so of we God. We are creators like God. We're the DNA of God. Or God's our DNA? <laughs> not sure I'd say, I'm not sure I would say we're the DNA of God. We're in the physical realm with our DNA as opposed to the spiritual aspect. Okay. Ron? Hi there. Yeah, I want, could I toss in a point of order here? Um, I think what, what you're talking about, Kim Thea, multidimensional beings being us, uh, which I agree with, uh, Multidimensional is one thing. Planar, for want of a better word, is what any religious perspective that I'm aware of uh, talks about. Because you may be in one realm and move to another realm, but there's just the one you. As a multidimensional being, there's a bunch of yous. And the idea in monotheism that God is omnipresent and so forth uh, implies that that is the multidimensional being, but it's not us. It's a distinction that's maintained in order to be able to structure them. And without that, using that structure in, an, in a conversation, it's very difficult to get anywhere because the gods that um, Gary is talking about are, um, well, a lot of them are recycled. You know, the, uh, there's the primeval, primordial storm god, and we don't even know where it started. Baal is about as far back as we can go. But you met, he mentioned Quetzalcoatl and all the others. There are equivalents to all the others. It doesn't mean they're different people. It means it's a retelling of the same story. Yeah, I actually think that the different pantheons around the world are talking about the same gods and that they just have different vernacular names because they have different sort of traits, so that you have, yeah. uh, you know, Baal that is going to kill Tiamat, right? You're going to have Marduk who is going to do the same thing. You're going to have the god of the Bible who kills Leviathan. In every account, you've got, whether it's in, in uh, India or anywhere around the world, you have one of these gods that are going to do the same act. They just have different names. And some of them will change a little bit here and there. But typically, it's, uh, it's really quite fascinating how similar those pantheons are, both in the parent gods that uh, Baal would have had as El as part of the parent god and uh, El's wife uh, to produce Baal would have been Asherah. Uh, Astaroth, as some people, um, it's also translated it as, and a series of other gods. So again, you have that consistency, just as you have the Ogdo gods of, of Egypt that has, you know, gods like Ta and Ra, and then you have the lower gods with Osiris, which would be more of an equivalent to Baal. Hmm. So... I'm seeing that these these gods are coming down into present time. You have one image, number five, the Vatican audience hall, and I find that very curious. Would you like to illuminate how that's fitting in with today? I mean, it's it's what we're seeing here, for those who can't see the page, 
On one side is the image of the building of the Vatican's audience hall seen from an aerial view. And on the other side is a, an image of a serpent's head. And they really are eerily the same. Yeah, and if people want to Google more pictures on that, there's lots of the pictures that are on the inside. Mm -hmm. And you get the complete imagery of a snake with the eyes and the fangs and then these unbelievable, this unbelievable statue um, in creation that's uh, in behind that is filled with serpentine creatures as well. And so the typical Christian uh, would, you know, when they look at this, they go, what the heck is that all about? Yeah, what is it about? Tell yeah. us. And you wouldn't expect this kind of serpentine imagery in, you know, in Christianity, except that you get the seraphim angels uh, in the Bible, and you get the Nakash, which is the serpent in, in, in the Eden account. But why is this part of the Catholic religion? That is just not something that, that they should be doing. And I, would, I don't want to say the Catholic religion as a whole, but with the leadership of the Catholic Church seems to have a bit of an infatuation with the serpent, which is, you know, identified as much with Satan as the serpent and the dragon, as he's described in Revelation 12, as the rest of the seraphim. And certainly Satan has part of his characteristics, a seraphim aspect to it. And he would be considered amongst the parent sort of gods. So Azazel might be part of that lower gods as you get as you start to look over into the Gnostic aspect and or the first Enoch books, first, second, third Enoch book of giants and that whole series. And so this seems to be an infiltration of an ideology that a lot of people think that the Catholic Church, and I would tend to agree with it, is going to be transformed and is transforming as we speak into uh, the Babylon religion, the universal religion of the end time. And so... What I do you mean here? What, what, what do you mean the Babylon religion of the end time? Yeah, I'll, I'll come back to that uh, in, in just a second. And so I just wanted to sort of have people start to look at that, that Rome is going to be used in a different way as it, I think it's going to be sort of taken over to, and it's going to be taken over by the serpent imagery and the reign of these ancient gods from the past, which are typically from the seraphim rank as being a serpent uh, um, angel. And understand there's going to be other angels as well. And we've talked about some of those, but these are the leaders, right? These well, are with the... that, that building there, it almost looks like it not going to be, but has been. Well, a lot of people say it's already there. I would still, still say it's in trans, transition. So Babylon is rooted in the word Babel from the Tower of Babel, where you have the first mystical religion after the flood. And it's a religion that is set up between a partnership, according to the Masonics and the Gnostics, between Hermes, who finds this antediluvian knowledge on the two pillars of Lamech, some of those legends say the pillars of Enoch for people who understand Masonic history. And they find this ancient knowledge and the mystical religion under the pyramids in Egypt and take this knowledge back to Babel and partner with Nimrod. And he starts to apply this knowledge to build Babel City, Babel Tower, because there's no record biblically of where Nimrod gets this this technology from, and certainly you wouldn't think Noah would teach him this technology that destroyed the antediluvian world. So it comes from somewhere, and we get an idea of that knowledge, whereas the story says that speaking as one people with one language, there's nothing that they intend to do that will be prevented from them, paraphrasing it. And Nimrod is classified as the first grandmaster of masonry after the flood, writing the first constitution, putting this knowledge back to work after the flood. And so Babel is this, this archetypical story for the end time where you have an antichrist type figure and you have this mystical religion and this application of knowledge that is significant in terms of that knowledge needs to be in place as it was in the days of Noah before the flood. 
that uh, took the ancient world to a level that was, in my opinion, greater than what we are today, because we're still catching up to them, mm -hmm. that uh, helped destroy the ancient world. So this Babel Babylon religion is this ancient religion that actually dates back before the flood with the original gods that were uh, before they were imprisoned and the ones who created the ancient Nephilim as opposed to the giants after the flood that are created. And the Epic of Gilgamesh is a great uh, little sort of story to tell if you want me to get into that in a few minutes in terms of what I'm talking about there from a second incursion and or survival of giants. Let's do that one after the break. We have four sure. minutes until the break. So, so this is, the, this is the mystical religion that dominated all of the empires, whether or not from, you're talking from the modern empires, starting with Babylon as we get out of the book of Daniel. So you've got Babylon, Persia, uh, Greece, Rome, and then the end time empire that Antichrist will, will take over. And the other two before that are going to be Assyria, where Nimrod is going to set up his... Uh, descendants and, and empires and Egyptian, which is where Hermes goes with Mizram, which is one of the etym etymological words that creates uh, the word Egypt and the founder of Egypt. And you have the second pillar of those mystical religions and Heliopolis being set up in the development of the knowledge. And, and okay. I know we're running short of time here, but that's the religion that is coming back. Okay, Gary. So in those... In those religions that you're speaking of, these mystical religions, where is the word love? Is it part of it or not part of it? Where is the word love? Mm-hmm. Well, all the religions preach love. Okay, so these mystical religions, at their core, they have love? Yes, it's how far that love extends. That okay. That gets right. to be the, the big issue. Okay, I, I had an interesting insight just a moment ago. I don't know if it's true, but we were talking about, you know, that they were all speaking the same language. And I'm realizing now with the Internet that everything you can go to a website, it's in another country and, and they can translate it for you. So basically now on the Internet, we're all speaking one language. You can go to any country and the translator's right there. Absolutely. That is becoming um, very much a one language thing. And even before we had this technology, you know, you had somebody like Francis Bacon, who's a Rosicrucian and a Gnostic. And he had wrote, written a book called The New Atlantis. Um, and, you know, it's about an end time scenario with science and religion coming back into harmony and this world government at the same time. But he was the pioneer and used several different kinds of societies, of writer societies, to develop a new language that they had envisioned the secret societies did, as in they, and the Rosicrucians in particular, who I'm talking about, and Bacon as the author of it, to create a worldwide religion, which became modern English. Oh. All right. And so mm. I'm looking here at number six. It, the WHO logo and this worldwide image, I, I personally have a sinister feeling about WHO, but I'm curious, is this this idea of a world global? Yeah, so this is a medical logo, right? And it's got mm -hmm. the rod of Asclepius, who is considered the god or the father of, of medicine and is uh, Escapulus, as I've heard it pronounced as well, um, and is the god or the father of, of medicine. And in some aspects, he's considered a Greek, but he's either a demigod or a god. And that's the rod that you see with, with that uh, staff. You know, the, we the, need to hold it there, Gary. I'm so sorry we're at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Other Side of Midnight, and our guest tonight is... Gary Wayne. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show 
and all previous 350 plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>